President Biden recently appointed four new members to the 10-member Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States. The conference is not an agency widely known to the public, so for an update, we turn to the chairman, Andrew Foyce. Mr. Foyce, good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Tom. It's great to be here, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about ACUS. Yeah, ACUS is really crucial because it has so much to do with individuals and companies' interactions with the government. But a little civics lesson here to start with, the 10-member council of the ACUS, and then you also have a more than 100-member membership. Tell us how the whole structure works. Sure. This was established by statute back in 1968 and then reauthorized in 2010. And the structure is, you start with my job, the chairman, I am presidentially appointed by President Biden and Senate confirmed, and I'm the only one at ACUS in that category. I've been here since May, so this is my sixth month. I succeed tremendous chairman like Paul Burkyle, and Antonin Scalia was actually chairman of ACUS before he became a judge. Then uh, under the chairman, there's the council. It's uh, 10 members plus the chairman, so 11 altogether. It's a mixture of government members and what we call public, even though they're in the private sector, members. The president appoints them, but no Senate confirmation is needed. Some of the duties of the council are to approve the subjects that we pursue with our consultants and staff, to make recommendations that come from those subjects to the full assembly, to approve new voting members of the assembly that I recommend, and to also give an approval for the budget that we submit to the administration and to Congress. So it sounds as if the council sets the agenda, but the entire assembly actually votes on what comes out of the ACUS itself? That's right. Yeah, the voting members of the assembly are 100 um, people, plus again me, so 101. 40 of them, no more than 40, can be from uh, the government sector. So we get general counsels and deputy secretaries. Sometimes they appoint other people to cover it. And then the rest of the voting assembly comes again from the uh, private sector, from a lot of academics who study and are expert in administrative law, and uh, also a a nice group of private practitioners, lawyers who practice with the agencies that we're trying to help. Then on top of that, non-voting, we've got about 100 more people who have usually been members and become senior fellows or special counsels. The man who was acting chairman before me is now one of our um, special counsels and liaisons who don't vote, but we further our contact with the government and with lawyer and administrative law organizations to get their advice. They're allowed to speak in committees, they're allowed to speak at the assembly, but they don't vote. And is there a general, I guess, gestalt for the administrative conference that there is a need to maintain fairness with how the government deals with people in the context of what I guess is a founding philosophy of the country, that government is limited into how much it can reach deeply into people's private affairs and into their bank accounts. Absolutely. Fairness is one of our bywords around here. We try to make proposals and recommendations and studies that increase the fairness of particularly the adjudication process where people or corporate entities of small businesses find themselves basically on trial for violating this regulation or that regulation. And um, to put in a few words, what, what we do and what our motto is around here is we try to help make government work better. It really is as simple as that. And we look for improving the effectiveness, the efficiency, and as you say, the fairness of the government across the board. And when we make recommendations, we then seek to implement them because, you know, it doesn't do a lot of good if we're shouting into the wind and no one is listening. We have a pretty good record over the years of Congress and the judiciary and the executive agencies 
implementing uh, what we recommend. Other themes for us are transparency and accessibility. We're working hard now on a, on a couple of uh, recommendations for the December assembly that really emphasize those themes. We're speaking with Andrew Foyce. He's chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States. And before I get to my next question, tell us a little bit about what is on that agenda coming up. What are you going to be taking up? Sure. We've got a committee process that we're uh, just finishing up now. We have five committees, and all voting members are assigned to a committee. The recommendations themselves start with a project origination idea. They're referred to consultants. We hire consultants to work with our staff to produce the first report. That goes to committee, then to the council, and then to the assembly. So we're right now in between the committee and the council process. Things we're working on right now include a study of enforcement manuals, those manuals, papers, documents that tell internal players in the agency and the public what the enforcement policy and procedures are. Some agencies have them, some don't. We'll be making a recommendation as to whether agencies should have them, and if so, how they should write them, how they should make them available, how they should be fair, that sort of thing. Then on the theme of public availability, we're trying to shed some light on settlement agreements. Just like in the courtroom system, the majority of enforcement and adjudication cases that agencies bring are settled far short of any evidentiary type of hearing. And those settlements are usually not made public. We're going to make a series of recommendations to reverse that and try to make those settlement agreements more public. And the third thing we're doing is a little bit legal. It's what use should decisions of an agency be applied in the future as precedent? So if you've got a case that has been decided before and now I've got a case before me that's pretty much the same thing, can I use that prior case as a way to guide me in this case? And it's complex because a lot of people throughout the agency make decisions on cases, not just administrative law judges. So you have to kind of parse through the decisions and see what should be precedential and what should stand on its own. Yes, because besides administrative law judges, several adjudicative types of agencies have a different class of person that sounds similar, but they're very different, and that's administrative judges. And sometimes there's an overseeing body above them that looks at whether cases are precedential or simply a rehash of something that happened before. Right. Sometimes even the secretary makes the final decision, so there's a lot to it. And how does the administrative conference kind of steer clear of the politics? Because sometimes policy changes so rapidly, toggling between administrations. I'll just give you one example. There's a rule now from more of a executive order from the Biden administration, and it was extant during the Obama administration, taken away by the Trump administration, taken away prior to that by the George W. Bush administration. And that is simply when one contractor wins an award away from an incumbent contractor to an agency, should the new contractor have to hire the people from the old contractor? Right now, they are required to. Huge burden, and it may be that the government took the new contractor on because it didn't want those people from the old contractor. That type of thing comes up, and it varies by the party in power. How does ACUS stay clear of all of that? Well, coincidentally, it's funny you pick um, contractors because we, in June, at our last meeting, we issued a recommendation on how the government should use and work with contractors. So we've been in that space. 
But as to the politics and changes of policy, one of the important things about ACUS from the chairman to the staff is that we do everything we can to stay nonpartisan, not even bipartisan, nonpartisan. Now that translates into bipartisanship as a practical matter. We don't let ourselves be swayed by the politics or the changes one way or the other. If it's a good change, it doesn't matter who issues it. If it's a bad change and the other policy was better, then if we look at it, that's what we'll say. And I think a lot of our credibility and a lot of our ability, you know, we have no direct power to implement anything ourselves. We have to convince other people with the quality of our arguments. And I think we have a lot of credibility by being nonpartisan. We have Republican-appointed council members. President Biden just appointed a bunch of council members. They have three-year terms, and maybe they'll be appointed by a different Republican president. So uh, that's how we handle the politics of it. Now, you were a deputy attorney general. You worked for a couple of administrations. Is this a slower pace? Is it exciting compared to being at that level in the Justice Department? Yeah, well, I I love that job in the Justice Department and working with Janet Reno. It was uh, an inspiring time. This job, I thought, frankly, was going to be a little bit that way, was going to be a little bit slower than what I was used to, but not turned out to be the case. Even though we have a small staff here, about 15 people, we really punch above our weight, I think, and we're constantly generating new ideas, working on recommendations in tremendous detail. We have committees on councils and assembly who, you know, parse every word to get it just right. I'm uh, making some changes, not major ones, but, you know, I have to always keep an eye on staying funded and continuing our support on both sides of the aisle on the Hill and with the administration. A lot of things have been put in place and a lot of people who don't need changing So um, the second thing I've found that I do is I try not to do any harm, uh, sort of the the Hippocratic Oath of ACUS, to continue the quality work that we've produced. I've been working on us becoming a go-to spot for case law and for legislative activity. So if the public or practitioners want to know what the latest cases are in, in certain subjects, they can turn to us and find it or what the Hill's been up to. And I've been putting a particular emphasis on implementation project origination, getting them more institutionalized rather than, you know, every six months hoping we come up with projects. And congressional relations and communications are, are, I think, important to get out the word of what we do. And there's a couple of products that have been out for a while, and I was just wondering any chance uh, that you'll be reviewing those or renewing them and maybe give us a sense of the take-up of them. One is the source book which is kind of an encyclopedia, if you will, of everything that goes on in the government. And then there's the adjudication database. I think that's a cooperative agreement with Stanford University. Anything new on those? They've been very popular, and we're pleased with that, and uh, that they're useful um, rather than sitting on the shelves. The source book is pretty stable. You know, the government doesn't change that much in terms of agencies and how they get filled. But we do use it. Uh, I just used it the other day at the Justice Department in helping to moot someone. A lawyer in the Civil Division is working on an appellate case uh, that pertains to ACUS. And the the database is also very popular, but that's something we've got to keep populated and keep updating, and we're on top of that. And I guess my final question is rulemaking. And there was a gambit to overhaul rulemaking a couple of years ago, and it seemed to have disappeared. What's going on with respect to review or possible updates to federal rulemaking, which at the time was described to me as the gold standard for open governments throughout the world. Well, that's a great place to be, and I I think you're right. Other countries look to our process because it is so thorough and it is so open and it strives for fairness and treating everybody equally. 
I'm familiar with the uh, impetus a few years ago for um, major reform of the rulemaking process. But as the Congress has been constituted in the last couple of years, there really hasn't been a lot of agreement on which way to head. So um, that has stalled a bit. Maybe, who knows, in the next Congress we can revise it. But we keep our eye on rulemaking. We, again, in June issued a recommendation about how to improve agencies giving notice to the public of changes in their regulatory uh, process, which, of course, requires public notice and comment as one of its backbones. So we're hoping to work with agencies to get them to improve making their regulatory changes known to the public and to the regulated entities. But if the makeup of Congress changes, why would that affect what ACUS does if rulemaking itself needs a good look at? My point is that we don't have the authority to legislate. We can't reform the regulatory process you know, writ large. We have, as I, as I said, um, discrete recommendations about the rulemaking system, which we communicate to Congress regularly, but Congress has the ball in its court for any uh, legislative change. Andrew Foyce is chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having us. I, I enjoyed our conversation. And tomorrow we'll hear from one of the new members, Fernando LaGuarda. We'll post both of these interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. On the professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts to recommend the best products for your vehicle and budget. Get maximum cooling system performance for 10 years or 300,000 miles with Peak Long Life Universal Premixed Antifreeze and Coolant. Now just $3.99 after mail in rebate. Limit supply. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.